and they set out for Shittim. And they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, As soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, your God, being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it, in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that I was with, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant. When you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now, therefore, take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, Now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of the harvest. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan, and those flowing down toward the sea of the Arabah, the salt sea, were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, it is tragically true that we forget that you are the Lord of all the earth. We are easily distracted. We usually focus on such trivial things. And often the things that burden us the most are of little consequence. 
and the things that even bring us the most joy or the things that we hope in the greatest are of also little consequence. And so we ask that you would renew our minds according to what is true. For we believe many false things. We're allured away from you by many false things. And we easily forget how great and majestic you are, how powerful you are, how glorious you are. And I pray that those words by the end of this service would have great weight and significance. They would not be simply words. They would be truths that compel us to worship. That we would all hear, all of us here with one accord would worship you fully and go out into our community with hearts full of joy and confidence because we serve the Lord God of all the earth. Do that to us now. We ask these things in your name. Amen. This chapter can be divided into three sections. The preparation for the miracle in verses 1 through 6. The purpose of the miracle in verses 7 through 13. And then the actual performance of the miracle in verses 14 through 17. And the text dives in immediately saying that three days after the spies who were visiting Rahab, as we saw last week, after those spies returned, they told Joshua what they had discovered and then instructions were delivered to the Israelites to prepare themselves to witness wonders which God would do among them. And really three sets of instructions are given in verses 1 through 6, you have officers going throughout the camp, giving instructions to the people. Then you have Joshua instructing the people. And then lastly, Joshua directly instructs the priests. So in verse 4, we have the instructions of the officers to the people. And they instruct the people, quite simply, to keep their eyes on the ark as it goes before them. So that they can follow it. And you'll recall that the Ark of the Covenant was that sacred box that had been constructed according to God's designs given to Moses. It was constructed so that it would be a sign of God's presence with Israel as they wandered through uh, the wilderness and as they came into the land. It was a sign of God's presence with them. And it typically resided in the tabernacle, but being the Holy Ark of the Covenant, it was placed behind the Holy of Holies, which the high priest could only enter once a year, and that was to make atonement for the people. And it could only be handled by priests. And the priests themselves could only handle it by placing long poles and sliding them into mounted loops in order for them to carry it. They could not touch the Ark at all. In fact, in Second Samuel chapter 6, one of the priests, Uzzah, grabbed the ark to keep it from falling to the ground, to keep it from falling on the ground. 
And when he touched the ark, God struck him dead. God did not overlook the violation just because Uzzah's motivation was good. That's how holy the Ark of the Covenant was. It was not to be touched or defiled by human hands. And according to verse 4, the reason that the Israelites need to keep a distance from the Ark is not actually because it's so holy. The reason that's given why they have to keep a distance is so that they will be able to witness the direction that it's going before them. And so that they could witness what the Lord's about to do. And that makes sense when you think if this whole crowd of people was following the ark, only a few people, those people that are up in front, would be able to see what's going on. God wants them to see where the ark goes, but he also wants all the people to witness what's about to happen without anybody getting in their way. And then you have Joshua's instructions to the people. He simply commands them in verse 5 to consecrate themselves. And the reason he gives is because they are about to witness wonders. Now the command to consecrate themselves was actually the command that was given to Moses. Sorry, that Moses gave the people by God when God was about to come down on Mount Sinai in um, Exodus chapter 19. And the consecration there is actually explicitly stated. What they were supposed to do was they needed to wash their clothes and they needed to refrain from sexual intercourse until that day the Lord descended. And the last time this command was actually given is in Numbers chapter 11, when God said that he would pour out his spirit upon 70 men who would become prophets in order to help uh, carry the burden that Moses had in leading the people. And so to prepare them for the coming of the Holy Spirit being poured out, they needed to consecrate themselves. And the word consecrate essentially means to prepare something for a holy purpose. In fact, it's the verb form of the word kadosh in Hebrew, which is the word holy. So it's the verb form of holy. So we would translate it to sanctify, to set apart, or to consecrate. To keep oneself apart from unclean things. And you recall that everything that was used in the tabernacle had to be consecrated before it could be used. And often that consecrate, the, the consecration for the items in the tabernacle was they had blood of bulls and goats that had to be sprinkled upon them to cleanse them from defilement. And also you have both people as well as objects getting consecrated for the Lord's purpose. So in order that they might be able to witness the power of God, God says the thing that is necessary is that the people need to consecrate or sanctify themselves. So what can we learn from this as new covenant believers who also desire to see God manifest his awesome power to us. In order to see the awesome power of God, does this mean that we too need to consecrate ourselves or sanctify ourselves? Is our failure to do so maybe a partial explanation why we don't see more of God's miraculous power? And if so, 
How is it that we consecrate ourselves today? Well, I think John 17, where we're at just a few months before, is actually very helpful. If you would flip in your Bibles to John 17, verse 17, as Jesus prays to the Father for his disciples, he gives some clarity on this idea of consecration and sanctification. John 17, verse 17. Jesus says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself so that they may be sanctified in truth. And as you recall, those are all the same word, all the same root. Consecrate and sanctify, it's all the same root word. And so if you look at that passage, first note that what consecrates us or sanctifies us is the word of God. Secondly, note that Jesus actually consecrated himself. He set himself apart in order to be the cleansing agent for us. And decisively then, in setting himself apart, he decisively accomplished our sanctification, our cleansing. He cleansed us by consecrating himself. And this work, so this work of consecration or sanctification has already taken place. We are already consecrated if we're believers in Christ's work on the cross. So this work takes, this work of consecration takes place to, uh, in us individually the moment the Holy Spirit comes into our life and causes us to be born again, giving us faith to believe in Christ's work. That's when we become consecrated. That's when we become sanctified or set apart is by being born again in the Holy Spirit. And you will recall earlier in John when Jesus actually promised the coming Holy Spirit to the disciples in John 14 that in mentioning the Holy Spirit's coming, what he said to them was that they would do greater works than even he had done. That through the coming of the Holy Spirit, they would do greater works than even he had done. John 14, 12. And he explained that the way to fully make use of the Holy Spirit's presence in John 15 was that we would abide in him. John 15:5 I am the vine you are the branches whoever abides in me and I in him he it is that bears much fruit for apart from me you can do nothing So new covenant believers having been already and permanently consecrated by the Holy Spirit take advantage of that cleansing power that consecration through the powerful presence of his abiding. So we take advantage of his power through abiding in God. Old covenant believers consecrated themselves by washing or refraining from intercourse. Here in the new covenant, we consecrate ourselves 
by trusting in what Christ's work and through abiding. We abide in God. And we abide in God by devoting ourselves to prayer and to the word so that we resist temptation and be set apart to serve God and his purposes. Now, the miraculous power. Again, that's why I want to see, see that connection. The coming Holy Spirit will allow the disciples to do greater works than even Jesus had done. And this miraculous power of abiding in Christ has been witnessed by many Christians. But personally, I've been particularly impressed by the testimony of Hudson Taylor. And I appreciate what his son wrote about him upon a visit he made to his aging father in 1932. This is what his son wrote. Here was a man almost 60 years of age, bearing tremendous burdens, yet absolutely calm and untroubled. Oh, the pile of letters, any one of them which might contain news of death or lack of funds, of riots or of serious trouble. Yet all were opened, read, and answered with the same tranquility. Christ, his reason for peace, his power for calm, abiding in Christ, he drew upon his very being and resources, and this he did by an attitude of faith as simple as it was continuous. Yet he was delightfully free and natural. I can find no words to describe it, save the scriptural expression, in God. He was in God all the time, and God in him. It was that true abiding of John 15. And that is a miracle of grace. That bearing tremendous burdens. Again, these aren't just possible things that could happen. There were riots. There were people that died. There were people he'd invested his whole life in that whose families were slaughtered due to riots. And he would read these letters, often very troubling, and yet be absolutely calm and not visibly untroubled. Through the power of abiding, the power of the Holy Spirit in his life. So after the people are instructed to consecrate themselves, we then have Joshua addressing the priests in verse 6. And he tells them to take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass before the people, which they do. Which leads us to the purpose of the miracle in verse 7. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with with Moses, so I will be with you. So the Lord knows how difficult the task is that he has called his people to accomplish. And that's seen by the reason he gives this miracle. Because unless the people are confident that God is going to be with Joshua just as he was with Moses, they are going to be quickly troubled. They're going to quickly become discouraged and lose heart when they come up against these inhabitants of the land who are not going to submit easily. And so... He chooses to strengthen their confidence in Joshua by performing this grand miracle before them. God is going to cause the waters of the Jordan 
to stop flowing so that all Israel would understand that God is with them and they will be able to cross safely over to the other side on dry land. But what's important to take notice of at this point is actually not the miracle itself, but the point behind the miracle. Just as God was with Moses, God is going to be with Joshua. And the point of that being that what makes Israel powerful is not its leader. It's Israel's God. That's the point. They don't need Moses if they have God. They don't need Joshua if they have God. What they need to have is confidence that God, the Lord of all the earth, is with them. And this is made clear in verse 10 when Joshua speaks to the people of Israel. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Parasites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. So the stated purpose of the miracle that God gives is that the Israelites might have confidence that without fail, God will drive out the inhabitants of the land before them. Remember again, this is, this is an act of judgment of God upon the inhabitants of the land. It's not, God's not just empowering the Israelites because he wants to give them a present of land. The Israelites are coming to the land, driving out these inhabitants, slaughtering them as an act of judgment for their evil. And he's, but he wants the Israelites to know that because he will be bringing judgment, he will be fighting the battle for them, they can have confidence. No matter how intimidating these people might be. And this is also emphasized by the fact that twice in this brief section... God is described as the Lord of all the earth. The point being, he is not simply the God of the Israelites. He's not simply the God over Canaan and all the Canaanites and over all the Egyptians. He is over all people everywhere. And he's also the God of all nature, which is proven in verse 13. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. God is going to prove his presence among them by cutting off the waters of the Jordan and allowing them to walk easily into the land. Now recognize There are other ways to enter the land. God does not have to perform this miracle in order for them to get into the land. It's not like there's there's just this geographic barrier that he's got to deal with. They could still have crossed over. But God does this explicitly so that they 
the Israelites, as well as the inhabitants, might know with confidence that the God of all the earth is with them. He's doing this for them. There are multiple similarities here that you probably have noted with the Red Sea crossing in the book of Exodus. And as we are talking about uh, these chapters at Text Talk, even this last week, Josh noted that it's almost like there's this inversion of the account in Exodus. Instead of fleeing from their enemies as they did in Exodus, they're actually marching toward their enemies here. And another difference is that instead of the waters being piled up like pillars beside them that they walk through, similar as it's depicted in the movies, the the waters here in this miracle are completely cut off to the extent that the Israelites can't even see it. The waters may dry for a distance of about 19 miles, in fact. They don't see water anywhere. And this is probably because their focus is not supposed to be on the waters. But their focus is to be on the ark. Because that's what matters. The presence of God among them. The miracle is being done so that I know the God of all the earth is with them. So the point of the miracle is actually not the miracle, but who is causing the miracle. And it displays to the Israelites what it means, in fact, that God is with them. Because we'll often even today use that term, God be with you. Or we pray for people that they might know The presence of God among them. And it's a good prayer to make. But I think we often fail to really understand, just as the Israelites did, what that actually means. That the God of all the earth is with us. And I say that because we need to truly recognize and understand who God truly is. The men who meet together on Tuesday afternoons are reading Knowing God, and this is a quote that J.I. Packer made in that book. Today, vast stress is laid on the thought that God is personal, but this truth is so stated as to leave the impression that God is a person of the same sort as we are. Weak, inadequate, ineffective, a little pathetic. But this is not the God of the Bible. Now just consider also just how God is depicted in movies today. He's often a mockery. Or he's depicted in in a human type Now, it's not that we actually believe that this is what God is actually like, or even that the makers of these movies actually believe that this is what God is like. And if somebody were to ask us, do you really think that's what God's like? We would vehemently deny it. No, that is not God. But at the same time, these caricatures of God do impact us. They do wear us down and we forget who it is that we actually worship. And slowly we begin to think of God in terms 
completely contrary to what he's truly like. We begin to think of God as being, well, like us. Maybe just better, more moral. But God is nothing like us. That's what it means that He is holy. There is nothing in all creation that is like the Lord God. Yes, we are like Him in the fact that we are made in His image, made in His likeness, but recognize we're made like Him. We're a mere shadow of what He is. It would be like Comparing Ken Griffey Jr. to his bobblehead doll. Now that bobblehead doll cannot hit a baseball. That bobblehead doll can't even think. He can't talk. He's a toy. He's a mere image of the original. And yet, we like to think of God like us. But we are His image. And the proof that we don't realize who God really is is seen by the fact that we don't really fear Him. And the evidence that we don't fear Him is shown by how often we purposefully and deliberately sin. And I'm not talking about just the inadvertent sins or yielding to tempting thoughts. I mean, deliberate sins, doing things we know are wrong. But maybe we just think we can get away with at the moment. If we really understood God's omniscience, and if we really understood His hatred for sin, we would be more likely to pull a gun on the president than to sin against God. Because, think about it, what's the worst that the Secret Service could do to you? Or... For that matter, what what could the U.S. government do? Uh, could what could they do to you compared to what the power of the Lord of all the earth has? The answer: nothing. Isaiah forty seventeen says, "All the nations, plural, all the nations, are as nothing before Him." They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. That is the God whose presence is with the Israelites. He wants his people to know him so that upon entering into the land, they will be strong and courageous when they face the temptations of, that are going to be coming against them. The temptations to fear, the temptations to doubt, the temptations to give in to the allurements of the Canaanites and their seductive worship and idolatry. And so to strengthen their hearts, He gives them this miracle. Why does it? To strengthen their hearts. He knows what's coming before them. And He wants them to know who it is that is going before them and who's going to fight their battles for them. 
And that leads us to point three, the divine miracle. In verses 14 through 17. Now, literally, literarily speaking, this is actually a, an, a very intriguing passage in uh, the Pentateuch. Uh, it is very craftily made. Uh, the author is very stylistic in his presentation. And he's developed the narrative in this chapter in order to actually build tension. And you might have noticed that maybe just a little bit in the English translation. He just gives you a little information and then he kind of moves on to something else and then a little more information. But he's he's kind of hinting about what's going to happen. But you don't actually come upon the miracle until verse 14. It's this building of anticipation and tension similar to... uh, Movies, how they'll increase the tempo of the background music when something's going to happen. Like in the movie Jaws, that's, that's the paradigmatic one, right? Dun, 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 and then it just keeps getting louder. Dun, 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 dun. And this section right here is the moment where Jaws is just moments away from clamping his jaws around his next victim. It's the climax of the scene. Verse 16, that is. And verse 16 also shows the magnitude of how significant this miracle actually was. As mentioned before, uh, the waters are cut off from Adam to the Salt Sea, or the Dead Sea, we call it today, which was a distance of about 19 miles. And just to add to the miraculous nature of this, this is during the flood season in In the Jordan Valley, during the flood season, a third of the Jordan Valley would be covered in water. A third of it. I mean, just think of what a third of the Willamette Valley was covered in water, what that would be like. And he cuts off the waters for 19 miles. But when the priests entered the waters, carrying the ark, suddenly that third became dry. And I love how the text is explicit. They didn't ford the river. They didn't just wade through the water. But every single Israelite crossed over to the other side on dry ground. It wasn't muddy. It was dry ground. There's no natural explanation for this. And any attempt to try and come up with some meteorologic explanation would actually just miss the whole point, right? The point is, there is no natural explanation. When God does these sorts of miracles, he's not wanting us to find out, hmm, what does this say about the beauty of our creation that we live in? The point is, recognize The God of all the earth can do whatever he likes. And he is with you. God performed this incredible miracle so that the Israelites might trust him. And God wants us to trust him as we seek to follow him and 
seek to live life for Him. And so even today, God will continue to give us evidences of His sovereign power and His miraculous working in our lives in order to encourage us along the way. And true, God's providential acts aren't on the magnitude of what we witness in uh, Exodus um, 14 or Joshua 3. But they do effectively remind us that God has not left us alone, that he's with us. Fifteen years ago, I heard this quote by missionary Alexander Duff. And I was so struck by it at even that fairly young age because I found it so profoundly true of my own experience. And it seared itself upon my memory to the extent that I can almost quote it word for word even though I had remembered it ten years ago. Alexander Duff, who was born in Scotland in 1806, went to India when he was 24 years old and he served there for 40 years. And on the way over, actually, he, he had to deal with two shipwrecks. And after spending, again, that 40 years for Christ and his kingdom, he wrote to his daughter later in life these words. Why should I, who have been the child of so many mercies, be faithless or doubting? If any man living should trust the Lord, in the Lord absolutely and cast upon him the burden of all his cares, I am that man. All my days I have been a child of providence, the Lord leading me and guiding me in ways unknown to me, in ways of his own, and for the accomplishment of his own heavenly ends. And it seemed as I heard that quote it, that he could have just taken those words right out of my mouth. And I have no idea. I cannot remember what ways I saw God's providence in my life up till the age of 20. I think I was when I heard that quote. Because even as I look back over the years since then, I have seen even greater displays of God's providence. He has done things in my life where there is absolutely no explanation. For instance, what particularly comes to my mind is just the fact that I am standing here in this church. There is no natural explanation for me being here. I remember when I first married Julie, we were having a conversation and she told me that she would love someday to move back to her hometown of Hillsborough so that we could help take care of her family. And I, and I told her, there's no way. Julie, we're planning on becoming missionaries. And even if God did not lead us after seminary to become missionaries, we would have to find a like-minded church, which there's probably only a few in the, in the country. And second of all, we'd have to find a church that would even have a position open. And thirdly, a church that would be interested in me. And all those you want to have happen in your hometown. It's just, let's, let's not, you can pray, but chances are slim. And then, just a few years later, the, the church I was serving at told me that I was not, they didn't believe that I was called to ministry, the elders there. And so, they said if I decided to pursue a job anywhere else, that 
they would prevent it as best as they can. And so they told me to just seek a job as doing some lay ministry. And so I had only taught. I mean, what do you do with a bachelor's degree and a master's of divinity? Um, while I was on kind of a fluke, I happened to get a part-time teaching job while I was in seminary at a small school near the seminary and had a little experience. So I thought, hey, let me just see if I can get a job teaching. I looked throughout Southern California, could not find a single job. And there's tons of Christian schools there. Nothing that would work except a part-time like two hours away. And I wasn't going to do that. And then decided to try the Pacific Northwest. The very, it was, I think it was the very next day after sending out applications, I got a call from a school in Seattle and ended up moving up there. And uh, that's how I got into bivocational ministry. I started serving at a church up there and just taught full time. I never wanted to do bivocational ministry. I would have thought it as fairly inferior when I graduated seminary, sorry to say. And um, a few years later, the church I was at where I was serving ended up merging with another church and the, the role I was filling there just was no longer necessary. And the elders were like, well, you can find something, something else to do. And so, and I was kind of tired of teaching, didn't want to teach anymore. And it was about that time, started searching all over um, the, the country for pastoral jobs. Um, nothing seemed to work out. And even those that where I did have positions offered uh, were only, uh, we, we, we discovered in order for us to move, we'd have to take a $50,000 loss on our house because of the housing market. We had lost that much. Okay, six months later, we gained, uh, I got a call from the elders and they, they, basically, they asked if I'd be interested in coming to serve. We had had a relationship with them. Um, also, that six months later, St. Stephen's, the school I'm teaching at, opened up a part-time job so that I could do both part-time ministry there and here and um, never found a better school I could serve at. Uh, also, with that in that same time period, uh, my wife's parents decided to move off their property and, and move into town, giving us a place that we could stay for very little rent and so that we didn't have to have a hefty salary in living here. And we made back all the money on our tome just by just changing the market and we sold it for exactly the same price that we bought it. And that's not to say, I mean, when I first was wanting to pursue pastoral ministry, this church was in a very different spot. And so um, I just see God's sovereign. None of those things, and in each of those things, there's multiple unlikelihoods for why they should not have happened. And yet, here I am. And I want to continue in line uh, with the strength that comes from remembering God's power by just closing with some simple testimonies from other believers who have witnessed the power and presence of God in their lives as they sought to serve him. And I want this to be an encouragement to you and hopefully even to trigger in your own mind the ways that God has been with you and strengthened you as you've sought to serve him. Captain Johnson was serving as a chaplain on an island in the South Pacific during World War II, and he prepared to go on a bombing raid on enemy-occupied islands 700 miles away. The mission was a complete success, but on the homeward course, the plane began to lose altitude and the engines faded out. A safe landing was made on a strange island. It was learned later that the enemy was just one half mile in each direction, yet the landing had gone undetected. 
the staff sergeant came to the chaplain and said, Chaplain, you've been telling us for months of the need of praying and believing God answers prayer in time of trouble and that he does it right away. We're out of gas, base several hundred miles away, almost surrounded by the enemy. Johnson began to pray and lay hold of the promises and believe that God would work a miracle. Night came and the chaplain continued his intense prayer. About 2 a.m., the sergeant awakened and felt compelled to walk to the water's edge. He discovered a metal float which had drifted up on the beach, an octane gas. In a few hours, the crew reached their home base safely. An investigation revealed that the skipper of a U.S. tanker fighting his ship in sub-infested waters had his gasoline cargo removed so as to minimize the danger in case of torpedo hit. Barrels were placed on barges and put adrift 600 miles from where Johnson and the plane crew were forced down. God had navigated one of these barges through wind and current and beached it 50 steps from the stranded men. And no doubt, waiting for that sergeant to ask that question, you tell us prayer works. How about it, chaplain? God wanted to prove his power and presence. John Payton, one of my heroes, uh, if there's any missionary biography, I would encourage you to read, read his autobiography, uh, Missionary to the South Seas, um, whose life was constantly in danger. And in fact, um, this brief account is from a time when the cannibals were trying to attack him. His church was set on fire. And there was this reed fence that connected the building to his home. And when he ran outside to put the flames out, he discovered that he was surrounded by a large group of cannibals with wielding clubs and eagerly cheering on one another to strike the first blow. But undaunted by them and desperate to put out the flames before it reached his house and consumed the inhabitants therein, he continued to fight the flames while they yelled and sought to strike him. And he writes this. At this dread moment occurred an incident which my readers may explain as they like, but which I trace directly to the interposition of my God. A rushing and roaring sound came from the south like the noise of a mighty engine or a muttering thunder. And every head was turned instinctively in that direction. And they knew from previous, previous hard experience that this is one of their awful tornadoes of wind and rain. Now, Mark, the wind bore the flames away from our dwelling house and had it come in the opposite direction, no power on earth could have saved us from being consumed. It made the work of destroying the church only that of a few minutes, but it brought with it a heavy and murky cloud which poured out a perfect torrent of tropical rain. Now, Mark, again, the flames of the burning church were thereby cut off from extending to and seizing upon the reeds in the bush. And besides, it had almost become impossible now to set fire to our dwelling house. The mighty roaring of the wind, the black cloud pouring down unceasing torrents, and the whole surroundings awed those savages into silence. Some began to withdraw from the scene. All lowered their weapons of war, and several, terror-stricken, exclaimed, This is Jehovah's reign! 
Truly their Jehovah God is fighting for them and helping them. Let us away. A panic seized upon them. They threw away their their remaining torches. In a few moments, they had all disappeared in the bush. And I was alone, praising God for his marvelous works. Patton held fast to the promise, I will be with you and I will help you. In all of his dangers, the Lord stood with him. He never forsook him. Patton could not have endured as he did without him. And so I would also encourage you, live your life fully leaning on the power and presence of God. Put your life into his hands and trust him to be there as you step out boldly in faith to do what he has called you to do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, open our eyes to recognize and understand what it means that the God of all the earth is with us. That you indwell us. And that you will accomplish all your purpose. Lord, open our eyes. Open the eyes of our heart, as as Paul prays in Ephesians, that we might know you. And that we might worship you as you deserve. We ask these things in your name.